Hey guys, welcome to Performance Anxiety. This week we welcome Jack of All Trades, Wharton Tears. He's done it all in the studio. Recorded, produced, arranged, and engineered his own music, as well as music from Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., Quicksand, and hundreds of other bands. He's recorded as the Wharton Tears Ensemble, Super Duper Looper, Aurora 23, and with No Wave Legends, Theoretical Girls, and A-Band. He gives us a glimpse into New York in the early 80s and how he started Fun City Studios where Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. recorded some of their classic albums. Follow him on Facebook. Check out his music on Bandcamp. Remember to follow us at Performance ANX on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe, rate, review, and share this show. Now let's jump right into Wharton Tears. Hi, this is Wharton Tears, uh, producer, engineer, and musician. And uh, I've got the ensemble and uh, lots of great classical music in the works. Um, I'm on performance anxiety and uh, I'm not sure that was very focused. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you for joining me tonight. Um, I've been a, a fan of a lot of your work, and um, really, it's really awesome to have you on. Okay. And I want to know a little bit more about how you got to where you are, because it's you've done a lot of behind-the-scenes work on albums that people, absolutely, myself included, love, and I want to know more about the behind-the-scenes of some of these albums. So I guess the first thing to, to ask you is... How did you get into music? Were you born into a musical family? And, and how, um, how did you start playing? Well, I started playing when I was 15 years old. I guess uh, the Rolling Stones got into music. Oh, something. there you go. But, uh, yeah, you know, and it was it was a high school band. And a bunch of us got together and said, yeah, we should have a band too, you know. So we started playing. And um I was the singer in the band originally, but uh, the drummer was so bad. I said, after like a couple of weeks, I can I can do way better than this guy. <laughs> that that got me into the drumming thing. Uh, now, did you know how to play drums beforehand, or was this just he's so bad? Nah, I mean, you know, I've I've always been a very instinctual uh, musician. Okay. Uh, I studied English in college for years and I, I felt that that kind of stilted my writing in a sense, because you, you start reading everybody else and you, you know, you, you, it's, it changes your thinking in a way I, as to how can, you can approach things, you know, I can understand that. And uh, with music, it was just all much more spontaneous. And so I, I, you know, and enjoyable. So I just kept going on that, that route. So you're playing in band through high school, and then you ended up going to Villanova. I, I did go to Villanova. And were you playing in band throughout college? And um, I was I was still playing with a lot of my my high school friends through college. Okay. Uh, we, we all grew up in the Philadelphia area, so we we played at some of the different things. We played in the boat houses, uh, beer parties, whatever you know. Right. So the typical kind of uh, party rock and roll kind of thing, I guess. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing that, that w was part of my, my youth at this point was, was also the recording stuff because my father, um, sold electronics. Ah, okay. 
And I was always fascinated. You know, I, I had a tape recorder in my hands when I was probably eight or nine years old. I, oh, wow. I would just love fooling around with it. Oh, that's awesome. So that really, you know, um, in Villanova, I was in, in the college radio station where, you know, I, I got to play my favorite music and learn how to edit tape. Okay. And, and things that, you know, turned out to be pretty useful down the line. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What time frame were you at Villanova? Um, I was at Villanova from 68 to 72, I guess. Okay. And so, no, 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 that would have been, that would have been high school. So I guess 72 to 76, pretty much right, right around that time. Okay. And then, so you left Villanova and moved to New York city. Was there a reason re behind that? moved to Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> the dream of everybody in the area. Well, I, it still is, I guess. It's well, you know, I, I grew up, I spent 13 years in central New Jersey. So I know that, that was my, I never did it, but yeah, that was, that was the dream of a lot of friends that I had. So, so what, what made you move to New York? Did you get it? Was it, were you looking for a job or did you get a job in there? Um, I was looking for a job. I mean, I, I'd, I'd grown up in Philadelphia. I was a little, I was a little tired of that. You know, I was just really looking for something different. Um, the girl I was going out with said, uh, you know, I want to go to NYU. Let's just go up to New York. Yeah. So we, 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 we pulled it together and, and, and did it. Um, and, and that's what got me here. And you were still playing in bands at that point, right? Well, I, I came up here. I really, um, I guess I did bring a drum set with me, but um, I, I was, I, I had just graduated. So I, I was still, well, maybe I should be a writer, you know, maybe I'll go into yeah. journalism or maybe I'll try this or try, you know, it's, it's, it's great when you're young and, and there's all these possibilities. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, New York seemed like the place. Uh, it, it was very hard to get work here. Um, I, I can remember going out and, uh, People saying, well, we'll give you a job. Just don't tell anyone you went to college. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh my They'll goodness. be afraid you'll, you'll leave in a few months or something. So, you know. Oh, wow. Man. But it was, a very, it was a very hard time in the city then. Um, I guess there wasn't a lot of work. And, yeah. That was but back it was when, a lot cheaper. It was a lot cheaper to live here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, New York was a really rough place at that point. Not like it's an easy place to live now, but back then, still. Today, you get out into, into the more burby places, and, and, and there may be some problems, but generally, the city itself is so well-lit and so crowded that yeah. <laughs> it's hard for things to go down there. Yeah, it's not a complete 180 from that point, apparently. You know. Well, but, I mean, back in, the, in, in, the, in that time, I mean, the, the streets were dark. Yeah. <laughs> there was trash everywhere. There was <laughs> lots less people. So, you know, there were whole pockets. You could walk down blocks and not see people, you know. Oh, wow. Today, that's virtually unheard of. I mean, you know, any time of the day or night. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, there's always something going on. Yeah. And you started playing in what I guess is known now as the no-wave scene with bands like Theoretical Girls. Can that, that was what got me back into uh, the music in, in New York. Um I was answering ads in the Village Voice. Oh my gosh, I remember that paper. Yeah, it, it was it was uh, you know it was a key element to to all the scenes at that point because it all kind of channeled through there, 
And, you know, I would go down every week and read all the people looking for drummers and call a few and go try it out. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was was kind of the big puffy hair thing, I guess, was going on then. And, yeah. uh, all, all kinds of bizarre things. But uh, finding the, the kind of art scene, the no wave scene was was kind of like coming home. And, and it, it aligned, I guess, with a lot of the things I felt. So what what really defines the no wave scene? Because I'm it it wasn't a, a very it wasn't around very long, and it, you throw that out to somebody, and and you know it's not like hey this was the punk scene, this was this, you know you say they, they were part of the no wave scene. Like what the hell was that? How do you describe it? Well, I you know I mean the the, the title was I guess kind of coined in a, in a sense because we were all looking for something to describe what we were doing uh, in a way that, you know, it obviously had elements of punk rock, but it wasn't really punk rock. Right, right. You know, and it had elements of art, but it wasn't purely art. I mean, we theoretical girls played a lot of what would be considered kind of pop songs almost. Yeah, I was, I was listening to <laughs> the, the, the 45, I guess, the single that, that came out and Right. The live album, and yeah, I, I, I see exactly what you're saying. You know, and, and I, I mean, I guess we were probably a little bit of the outliers of, of the, the, the no wave thing was encompassing a lot of things. A lot of it was just very raw and and hard hitting, I guess would be the describe it. You know, Lydia Lunch, uh, James Chance, uh, you know, then DNA it was kind of a little more arty musical things being brought in and uh you know, theoretical girls was was kind of a little bit, a little bit of all of us. <laughs> it's really interesting stuff, and I have a question for you about theoretical girls. Sure, I was listening to uh, I was listening to it on YouTube. They've got the uh, they've got it up there, and they've got the original artwork as the the art uh, for the video. And I, I saw on the back on the song "No Love," you sing, but you're also listed as playing special guitar. Okay. What in that? What, what can can you explain that? Well, Do you remember what that is? Well, no, no, no. Uh, Love was an A band song. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm getting them mixed so, up. I'm sorry. Ahead to, to pass the theoretical girl. Okay. Okay. But um, yeah, uh, the, the the special guitar, I guess, was uh, the the first guitar I bought, which was a, a just a Japanese uh, thirty dollar Japanese electric guitar okay. that, that never would quite go into tune. But 
I, I would put it in all kinds of tunings in order to be, to be able to, to, to use it to create things. <laughs> so it's, uh, I guess that's what made it so special. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those special things that's just not quite right. So, all right, so we, we, we jumped past theoretical girls because I, I mixed them up in my notes here. So, so, okay, no so, the, so the theoretical girls were short, pretty short lived. And then you moved on to starting a band. Mm-hmm. And, and they kind of they were sort of simultaneous. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, once you started playing music downtown, you you would find that lots of different people wanted to to play with you. You know, well, there good. were always different kinds of bands being formed and unformed within you know weeks and <laughs> <laughs> only lasting weeks apparently. <laughs> Sometimes only lasting weeks. Um, I mean, theoretical girls was very short lived, uh, but you know. I say very mighty for what what it actually what we actually got out there. I well, uh, I liked what I heard. I thought it was really yeah. cool. So, is there stuff out there that hasn't been released yet? And I know there's like a, a live album and some, and some compilation stuff. Yeah, if you haven't heard that, that's that pretty much will sum it up because I, okay, that, you know, lots of live cassettes and uh, I I run some uh, real real tapes at CBGBs when we played, so there there you know some some decent structures to the live shows, which is is how most of that stuff really probably existed best anyway. So right, right. <laughs> Were you uh, recording bands at this point? Um, I hadn't really started recording yet. That would that would be a little bit after a band, I guess, and that that would all start. Okay. I have a question from a few weeks ago. I had uh, Michael Draw on from Swans, and I threw out a question. I, I threw it out that I was going to have him on, and uh, somebody asked me a question that or that they wanted to know if he knew the answer to. He didn't, and. So I asked Robert Poss from Band of Susans. Sure. He didn't know the answer. He suggested I uh, reach out to Evans Walforth. He didn't know the answer. And he suggested I ask you. Okay. So this is a really roundabout way, but I've, I figured I'd, I'd probably pu- wanted to put it into some kind of perspective here. Uh, they wanted to know if, uh, if anybody ever knew whatever happened to the guitarist Sue Hannell. Ah, uh, the Sue Hannell mystery. Yes. So I, I, somebody said I should mention. I, I should ask you. Well, it, it's uh, it's kind of legendary at this point. I mean, no one. She seems to have fallen off of the face of the planet. Yeah. She she was a very talented guitarist and a very very strange person. Um, I I remember going over to her apartment and it was. Uh, I think it was completely devoid of anything. <laughs> I read that in some kind of article and, and, and trying to do some research for it. They said that, yeah, she, I think she had a sleeping bag and like one other thing in her house and then her guitar. And that was it. And I, I know she worked as a bike messenger a lot. And I believe at some point she had had an accident and, okay. and may have suffered some, you know, relatively s- kind of serious injury. But I, I I haven't seen her, you know, well, probably in like decades at this point, right? Yeah, it, it, it's it's at least twenty years. Yeah. I, I forget who we had the Sue Hannell discussion with. Maybe it was Evans. Maybe he had, he had asked me at one point. <laughs> yeah, he I I threw it out to him, and he's like, I got to New York after she had kind of disappeared. 
So I never worked with her. He just, then, so ask Wharton. I said, oh, okay. Yeah, she, I mean, she was one of those great guitarists that, that had a very unique style. That's, yeah. You know, which to me is always is what makes a guitarist interesting, you know, that some of them just have their own kind of way of processing everything, and it makes for interesting sounds. Oh, and, yeah. and what I heard was really powerful stuff. I mean, it, it sounded like six or seven guitars but it was a demo you know i mean it just it, you can obviously you can tell she's it's just like a one take thing and michael kind of confirmed that he, he said yes yeah, she would play something once and then never play it the same way again so yeah <laughs> he said that was a bit challenging well it, i mean that's always challenging but you know <laughs> in, in, the, in the quest for for new art uh one has to go the limits that's yeah yeah <laughs> So, all right, so we still don't have an answer uh, to what happened to her. So I haven't been able to answer that for my listeners yet, but we'll keep working on it. We'll see if we can okay. find anybody who has any idea what happened to her. At what point did you really start working behind the scenes in engineering and producing? Well, I guess um, after, after A-Band, um, I, uh, I, I was a building superintendent uh, on 22nd Street. Wow. And um, the uh, basement of the building flooded relatively continuously. Oh, so they, they were unable to, to rent it. And the owner said, uh, if you want to use it to play drums or something, just, just go right ahead. So oh, wow. that, that kind of got me down there. And, uh, you know, I cleaned it up or whatever and started uh, recording with a cassette player. I'd have people over and. One guy said, you know, this sounds better than the studio I went to last week. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that got the, 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 the cogs rolling. And, um, you know, I, as I said, I, I've recorded for years. I'd always been into recording and the process of it. So um, I looked around a bit and uh, Tascam had just introduced their uh, half inch reel to reel machine for under $2,000, which, you know, suddenly put that you know, studio well within reach or more within reach than it, uh, you know, would have been two years before that when you would have spent 10 or $20,000 on the tape machine. Wow. So, oh my gosh. Let's see. Was that around 82? Was that the, uh, yeah, why pants? About that would have been very early eighties. Yeah. 82. Sounds about right. Okay. okay. I'm looking at, at, at some of the work you've done in a, and it's amazing. I mean, all right. So 83, you've got, Sonic Youth, Confusion is Sex, and Kill Your Idols, uh, Glenn, Glenn Branca. Now, I was listening, and, and I'm going to kind of jump around here because it's, it, everything seems no just kind of really intertwined. And, and it, you, you have your own bands right now that you, that you work with, uh, you know, the, the Wharton Tears Ensemble. And you also do uh, a project called Super Duper Looper. And a lot of that, to me, sounds like stuff that would have come out of working with Glenn Branca and Reese Chatham in, in New York around that time. It's, it's especially, uh, God, I wrote the two songs here down, down here. It's a uh, cryptological mathematician and telescopic echo re relay.
Those right. are amazing. I absolutely <laughs> love those tracks. And I think that's because I love Glenn and, and Reese's stuff. And it just reminded me a lot of it's amazing stuff. Were they? Were, did you do a lot of work with with Glenn and, and and work with Reese at that time? Yeah, you know, I, I I played with both of them. I mean, obviously Glenn from Theoretical Girls. Yeah, uh, and uh, Reese, you know, was right around the same time period. He actually played with Theoretical Girls a couple times. Oh, did he? Extra guitarist. Oh, wow. Um. But, you know, I mean, it all kind of started with Theoretical Girls because it was the combination of Glenn and, and Jeff Lone. And Jeff Lone was, had a much more classical kind of background. So he's, he would start bringing in these crazy songs that were just like extended, you know, pieces. And, okay. uh, you know, Glenn picked up on that almost immediately. You know, there was something very seductive about it, I guess, in terms of being able to express music in a way that wasn't just pop. But okay, yeah, you know something, something a little different. It gave you, it gave you room to to experiment without being like your typical psychedelic Grateful Dead kind of jam session. Well, and as I said, there was an audience for it because of the whole no wave thing being sort of open to all these different influences. Yeah. You know, so you you could go in there and do something that was almost classical or or jazz and and have it work within the context of no wave right <laughs> so i think everyone started just kind of exploring uh different avenues and things uh glenn and reese went obviously very much in the same direction with the multiple guitars yeah that was after like 400 or something like that you know and they they both seemed to go back and forth as to whose idea it was which are <laughs> really to me it's like <laughs> it's a good idea so yeah it doesn't matter who started it. Just no, it doesn't really matter who started it. Just you know, do a good job with it. That's 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 all I want. Yeah, make something make something interesting. So you've worked with some. I'm going to go back to some of these these people you've worked with because okay. uh, one of these songs that you that you're credited with working on is Dinosaur Junior's cover, uh, the Cure cover that they did. It, and it's just like what was it just like heaven. Yes, that, yes. For some reason, that, that I'm blanking on names tonight, but that is one of my favorite covers of all time. It's just amazing. And it sounds like you guys ran out of tape at the end and it just cuts off like right in the middle of the song. Is What happened there? Well, that was uh, Jay's decision. To, that's how he wanted to end the song. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I had just spent uh, maybe a couple of weeks before that with John Spencer. Oh, wow you know, uh, editing one of his, his records that I'd worked on him with. And, uh, John was always the kind of person that, you know, there would be like a click or something and you'd take it away. And then he'd be like, what happened to that click? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, that's part of, you know, don't, don't, don't take that away. I want that between the songs, you know, oh, you wow. go back and forth over what the, you know, was happening between each track. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. So, um, 
Then I get with, with doing this thing with Jay, and Jay's like, yeah, let's just end it right there. I said, well, that's a, that's a pretty hard cut, but, you know, I, yeah. that's the way you want to do it. Let's let's do it that way. You know, it's it's certainly unheard of. And yeah. I guess when, when they went to release the record, it can't end like this. Oh, <laughs> you know, they're going to play it on the radio, and it's just going to be like a dead stop, and it's just totally unacceptable for radio play. <laughs> They actually took the track in somewhere and edited like some reverb onto the end of the cut. Oh, really? Now, I don't know if that's like that that became like a promotional copy or something that was released like that. I, I know that, that Jay always liked the hard ending and he was kind of oh, yeah. bumped out by the <laughs> attempt to <laughs> soften it up. <laughs> I can imagine. That's just, but, it, it's just yeah. an amazing, amazing because, like you said, I've never heard anything like that at, at that point. That was on, on purpose, anyway. You know, I'd record stuff on a cassette, and it would do that because I ran out of tape. So, but you know, on purpose, it's just so different. Well, you know, I mean, and and Jay certainly has a lot of kind of stuff in his background. So maybe it was just something he had, you know, had heard on a cassette and wanted to duplicate. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe he's or, he's, or he thought it would just be. A, it would just be very effective. I guess it is. It is. It, it, I love it. It st- makes it stick out to me, for sure. Now, you also were doing work uh, for people like Eric Bogosian and Whoopi Goldberg around that time, right? Mm-hmm. What were you doing for those guys? Well, Eric uh, Bogosian played uh, with A-Band quite a few times. A-Band was... was uh, it was almost a kind of a party band. It wasn't really a no wave band. Okay, okay. But we 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 did a lot of art shows and and things like that because we we're all it was all Soho based. So um, I guess that's what what created that intertwining. Uh, and uh, Eric used to, to to come to his comedy act as part of the show. <laughs> really? Oh, cool. The the, the Ricky Paul show. Okay. Yeah. And he would he would just be you know Ricky Paul the <laughs> DJ ever, and then Whoopi Goldberg was uh, it was just one of those things that came together and it w- it was like a, a one time thing where I basically pay, played drums backing her up uh, and I don't even remember what it was for. <laughs> Still backing up Whoopi on drums that's not something you hear very often. No, no, no. <laughs> you might be the only person to be able to say that. Well, she she was a she was a, she was fun. I'm I'm sure. Uh, I mean, I'm sure she must have done other work with musicians. So, I, I, <laughs> I don't know a bit, but that's. I mean, you know, it's in New York. It's the you know late seventies, early eighties. Anything could have happened. I'm sure. And you, yeah. Worked- well, I mean, that's like a lot. A lot of those things came together. You know, it was like playing with Laurie Anderson. It was the same kind of thing. I was know? just about she, to ask you about that. Yeah, she she saw a theoretical girls show and she liked the drumming and um you know, I came over and worked with her uh and and flew out to um do the new music uh seminar out in Minneapolis with her and play, and played that oh, show wow. with her. Oh man. And, uh, you know, I really it, it was the first time I really got to hang out with her, so I got to to, to you know, talk with her a bit and really enjoyed uh her company and um I can remember that show, though, that she had a tape that she wanted to play while the drums were happening at the very end. And 
for whatever reason, there was there was some glitches in the in the show, and the, the tape never came on. Oh! <laughs> and she kind of, she kind of looked back at me in, in <laughs> horror, and we just started going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Laurie Anderson was a very unique artist. I mean. I, I'm trying to remember. I, the first time I heard of her was in the early '80s. She had some video that they used to play on MTV a lot, and I was a little kid at that point. And I'm just like, "What in the hell is this?" It was like her and the Residents and and bands of, of like that, and I didn't get it at the time. And it took me years to start getting into into Laurie Anderson and, and kind of figuring out what was going on. Right, right. And I think I still am. So. Well. I, I always sum up Laurie, and you know, she, at one point uh, we, we played with her, and I, I guess I was playing with Reese Chatham, and uh, she was on before us or after us, whatever. But she was going into this whole story about how she just got off a plane and you know was flying to Europe and this and that, and then the story went on and on, and it seemed so natural and everything. And then well, after the show, I went up, and it was all written out. On her keyboard. Oh wow! <laughs> oh but, my god! But she awesome. delivered it, and, and you would swear that it was just coming off the top of her head. So oh, wow. I mean, to me, that that was always her talent to just be able to assimilate things like that. That's awesome. I wish I had that kind of kind of talent because obviously, I'm not as good as she is. I'm writing my notes and I'm mixing up your band names and doing all kinds of stupid <laughs> shit. So. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just that I have too many bands in my background. I, I, I often forget them. Uh, I remember being at a party years ago and, and uh, the music's playing and someone comes up to me, uh, you know, obviously a friend or someone I know. He says, do you like this song? And I'm like, it's, it sounds pretty good. He goes, you recorded it. <laughs> I have to say at that moment, I, I did not remember recording it. Well, you've done so much, though. I, I, I can't blame you. I mean, look, you've got a Sonic Youth from early 80s through, what, the 90s? Um, yeah, well, I mean, they, 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 they were they were long-term friends, I guess, Yeah, and as much as anything, you know. So that they, they were the first ones into Fun City when it started uh, with Confusion to Sex and, and all that. Um, and you know, the relationship continued for on and off all, all throughout the time they played. So, and is that how you started getting more and more bands to come in? Um, cause you've worked with some of my favorites, like dust devils. I love quicksand. Quicksand is one of my favorite bands of all time. And that's the first I, I remember hearing of you is getting the manic compression album, flipping it over and seeing you on the credits. Cause that was, yeah, I'm like, I don't Okay, this guy's, I love this album. I got to keep an eye out for, for his stuff that he's worked on. And uh, the, the list goes on and on. But that was the one that really stuck with me was the Dinosaur Jr. and uh, Quicksand. Was there, is there a band that keeps coming up to you and say, hey, you know, if a new band comes and contacts you and say, oh, you worked on this and that's why I wanted to work with you. Is there anything like that that, that finds itself coming back to you constantly? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, Sonic Youth has actually uh, always been a big hook, I guess, because, of, yeah. you know, their notoriety being out there and, and a lot of attention. Um, but it was just the fact of 
having the studio in Manhattan and being part of the music scene there that I just, you know, always ran across bands and they were always like, Hey, yeah, we want to record. <laughs> I- <laughs> Um, you know, I, I was always, you know, my one talent as recordist is I was always very um, quick at it. Okay. You know, uh, a lot of times bands would rent studios and go in the first, you know, 10 hours, they'd be getting a snare sound. Oh, yeah. And, you know, then the next day they would get the, you know, bass and this happening. Whereas my studio was always pretty much set up. So people would come in in the evening, you know, after work or whatever, and plug in and play, and they could leave with a couple songs recorded. And, oh, wow. You know, all went well. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, hey, that, that gives you a good reputation. It, it gives you a great reputation. And, you know, so pe- people were always willing to... Uh, to come try it out. And, and, and that's why, uh, you know, a lot of them were friends of friends of friends of friends. And I, I would go to CB some night and there would be five bands playing recorded all. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, so I've, I have a question for you because a lot of these bands that you recorded are like really noisy bands. And like, like they, there's a lot of feedback, a lot of loud, heavy guitars. Is it, hard to rein that kind of stuff in like sonic youth comes to mind because they play with a with feedback a lot is it is it hard to record that stuff where it's it sounds good and and the band likes it and it's as good as their live stuff well you know i mean it's always hard to make bands as good as their live stuff you know uh i mean that's always the challenge of recording to me yeah uh, is, is is to kind of come up with that energy you know, when we were doing a thousand leaves with Sonic Youth, they had just set up their studio, so it was all kind of very uh, hermetic experience of going down there every day and working on you know parts of songs or this or that, you know. Yeah. And after about nine months, and they basically had a record pretty much together, they went out and did it live. And after I saw the show, I came back. I said, "We're going to have to like redo some of these tracks because." I mean, wow. you just played it much better live, and, and it, it's a shame that, you know, we need uh, to get that kind of energy. So, you know, and they, they did agree with me, and we did get to do a few of the tracks again. But uh, so I'm not sure where that's, that's going. Yeah. <laughs> me either, really. <laughs> it's kind of a weird question, I guess. It's, it's, well, I mean, it's, I, I guess to, going back to the feedback and everything, I mean, it's relatively easy to record feedback. It's, it's another thing to try and make it work as part of a song or something like that. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I mean, technology now, you, you, it's, 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 you know, once we had the multi-tracks going, I mean, you, you go for it. If it yeah. doesn't work or, you know, you try and modify it in some way that will make it work. Or you try it again. <laughs> yeah. Is it hard to reproduce stuff like that? Because, I, I, you know, it seems like it's just like this uncontrollable force. And you start doing, you know, trying to get feedback on your guitar. You just never exactly know exactly what's going to come out of it. Yeah, well, you know, you, you crank the amp up and, and then you, you, you're going to get something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's going to work with, with your song or not. I mean, that's always the challenge, but... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I always liked heavy, loud music. I guess so. Growing up in the in the in the '60s with all the you know psychedelic music and whatever, I, the loud guitars and distortion and everything were things that I liked. So oh, I too. would only encourage that 
<laughs> yeah, and I would only encourage that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it worked out because some of my favorite albums are the, were ones that you worked on, and that kind of, I guess, brings up a question for the uninitiated, like myself. What exactly is the difference between producing an album, uh, engineering it, and mastering it? I, that, I'm sure we could do an entire show on just that, but. Yeah, you probably can because I mean it's uh, it's it, it's always a big uh, item of debate. I mean, the the engineering and the production are, are really the the two that are the most intertwined. Okay, in my mind, I mean um, because to to me, I, I was always an engineer and a producer, but you know more an engineer, and and the production stuff was just trying to encourage people to play and to get it together. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and then of course the mixing and whatever is is is, is stuff where you br- you're bringing your own ideas into it. Okay, um, you know sometimes they say, well, that's just engineering. You know, if you're just pushing the knobs and and but it's 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 really the the kind of how how you control it and you know wh- where the control lies. I guess you know to me it was always it was always about making the bands happy and, and getting the music to sound like they wanted it to sound. Yeah, right. Yeah. In in that sense, you know, I maybe opt out on a certain level of production where you kind of go in and say, this, this is what I'm going to create with this band. Yeah. I was letting the band do the creation and I was just more concerned with getting it down in a way that, that made sense and, and sounded great. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, so, you know, I mean, I, I would say that there are some people that just do engineering and just sit there and the guy says, raise that a couple DB and that's what they do. <laughs> but, you know, I was always much more involved in that in, in everything I did. And it was only later on when, when the producers were actually getting paid something extra <laughs> that, <laughs> that we had to quibble over these things. Ah, okay. Okay. <laughs> that, that makes even more sense now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have influences in your product on the production side of things for you? And are they different from your musical influences? Um, I can't say, you know, I, I mean, I, I was a, as a drummer, I always liked full sounding drums, I guess. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, and, and I, you know, a, a certain largeness to that. Uh, I don't know who I would say is really responsible for that. Right. Do you, do you have anything specifically in mind when you're? Well, I love all those. I, mean, I always love records where where it's, it's like a big production, right? So, you know, whether it's with Bronca hundred guitars or, uh, <laughs> you know, um, just just making a, a group sound huge. Um, of a specific person i don't know i mean the, the beatles and the stones are where and you know it all started for me so i guess you know you have to give all that of those people credit um certainly their their records had had you know a pretty encompassing range of things to draw from yeah uh, oh for sure for sure i mean basically everything but you know i was always i was always the kind of guy that bought the music and then didn't really read the credits on the back so much. I'm the exact opposite. I would read it and then I would, I would listen and I would just like read it from beginning to end. Lyrics, who they thanked, every everything on that. So. Yeah, it was only when 
started putting out records that I really had to start thinking about that. I'm like, oh, well, there has to be some stuff on the inside. What do you really want to say about it? I don't know. <laughs> now, you didn't really record anything on your own from, um, like, I would say, what was it, 83 to about 96 is when you put out your first, your first solo album? Were you recording and writing throughout that, or were you just focused on production? Well, I, I always uh, I always wrote and recorded music. I've got I've got hours and hours, <laughs> and hours to prove it. Um, and I, I did get very involved in the studio from the late '80s through the early '90s, primarily because the you know the money showed up really, and all of a sudden people wanted me to do these very big, expensive projects. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it, it was kind of hard to turn down. Um, but, you know, by the mid nineties, I, I was saying to myself, you know, why, why did this all start? <laughs> yeah, and, and really it didn't start for the production. It started to play music, you know, and, and to write music. So I, I kind of took the trip back towards that, you know, okay. point. How did you find a, well, I guess the best way to put it is, did you just want to play with more people or did you want to put out solo stuff? Because you've got kind of a mix in your discography from 96 through now. And uh, it's, it's quite the range of stuff. I mean, you've got stuff, like I was saying earlier, that, that sounds like Chatham and, and Branca, but then you've also got these really delicate piano pieces. What, was there, was there something you wanted to do? First, did you did you want to start off in a group or was solo more what you're aiming for? Well, I, I, I always like the idea of a group and being able to present it on, on a live situation, you know, because so much of the music I've written in, in, in a solo sense would be harder to present in a live situation without, um, you know, bringing in a lot of people and teaching them things or whatever, right. where, whereas the the ensemble was kind of like, well, we'll get together every week and I'll keep coming up with ideas and we'll see where it goes. <laughs> but, you know, once the ideas were, were put together, then it became relatively easy to go out and play them, which which was kind of an interesting thing because I hadn't really, I, I pretty much stopped playing for years on stage, you know. Yeah. So yeah. It, was, I mean, it was trying to get back to that and I just felt more comfortable doing it with, with a group of people. and That makes sense. You know, as the drummer. Yeah, exactly. If you're not playing for, for, you know, 10, 15 years, jumping out on stage on your own on a piano might be a little intimidating, <laughs> yeah. I would imagine. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I've, I've done that, but it, it, it's not the most comfortable feeling for me. Because, <laughs> I mean, again, the, way, the way I create it is, is so flow-oriented. It's not really things hard written down and everything. So yeah. it requires a certain level of improvisation while I do it. Um, okay. So the, your first album, the Wharton Tears Ensemble album, Brighter Than Life, that was 96. Was, mm-hmm. any, was any of that made from the stuff you'd been recording in the 83 to 96 gap? Well, I, I would say some of that uh, was definitely, uh, yeah, some of that was, was written. Some of those ideas were formed in that gap period. Um some of the some of those pieces on that record were just improvs on okay tape um, that basically I played most of the parts. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's having the studio is always 
the thing to, to me at that time because I could always just go down and start the tape rolling and put something down, you know, whenever I felt like it. Yeah. Is, that's it's, it's kind of amazing on one hand. It, it, it can create problems on another hand, but. Uh, oh, really? Well, the problems it creates is, is, is generally you have too much time and then, <laughs> you know, there is such a thing as having too much time to record. Oh, really? Never, well, never getting things quite finished, you know? I mean, it's... it's. You know, they, you, I was trying to re- think of who, who I was speaking with the other day. Um, I, it may have been Robert Paulson when he came on. We were talking about how having defined barriers actually makes you more creative. And I think you just kind of confirmed that a little bit. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. You know, I mean, to me, once once I had 16 tracks on tape, I mean, that, that seemed like a, <laughs> a wealth of, of things you could do. And then, of course, the, the recording technology went way past that where they're locking up 24 tracks. Yeah. You know, now um, I, I got something to mix the other day from this, this band and there were actually 55 tracks. Whoa. And I said... I said, you know, it's it's going to take me hours just to listen to each track, <laughs> much less trying to put them all together. You know, I mean, and oh of course they, they said, well, you know, it evolved for them over the period of a couple of years, so they they didn't think it was complex, but they were only revisiting it every few weeks and then adding a little of this or something there or whatever. Oh my gosh. But but to me that that's a that's a very hard way to, to, to create you know it's it's much it's much better to have a limitation and, and say this is the way it's going to be, I mean Super Duper Looper was literally four tracks. Oh really? No more than four tracks, and two of them were were live uh, cities tracks. Oh my god! Just the sounds of New York City, just you know, it's so dense. Be, yeah, I know. I mean, lots of lots of effects and and delays and things like that to create the density. But in in reality, most of it is actually fairly simple. Wow, that's impressive! Oh my gosh! So okay, so that that brings me to another question. Without these the, the barriers, like you, you with digital equipment, emulators, um, files instead of tapes, now you can have an endless amount of of tracks. You can you know you can. Instead of trying to find a new piece of equipment that maybe makes you sound a little bit unique, you know, you you can get an emulator that makes you sound exactly like Hendrix for crying out loud. <laughs> Has that changed how you work at all in the studio? Well, um, not so much. I mean, I, I guess I was a late uh, comer to the computer uh, only because I I just preferred tape. I had worked with it all the time. I was very comfortable with it. And, you know, the one thing that doesn't happen with tape is you don't tend to, to lose the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> or, or have them not line up correctly or, you know, yeah. any, any of the other myriad of problems that, that one has with a computer. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, you know, I mean, the ability to, 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 to completely modify something is, is wonderful. But it, is there a point to it? I mean, are, are you? Do you know where you're taking it? Right. You know? So if you know where you're taking it, then it becomes a useful tool. If it's wow, I can sound like Hendrix now. Yeah. <laughs> do, the, do you the, start recreating Electric Ladyland? Yeah, exactly. At the push of a button, and you know, exactly. And at what point does that just now you're just a Hendrix cover 
guy. You know, and, and, and now, of course, the, the computers are even taking over to the point where they're going to write the music, you know, and it's like, it's like what people just want to be able to sing now and, and put some lyrics in or not uh -huh. even that. I mean, maybe a couple of lines or, and then just have a whole song pop out. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I, I, I saw something the other day and it, it made me laugh really hard. And it's, it's, I'm wondering if this is, if it's going to get to this point with music, but Somebody, a lot of people actually, have taken genres of movies or books and fed them into artificial intelligence processors, I guess, and had this artificial intelligence machine spit out its own uh, script. And it's, it's insane. It's, some of it makes some kind of sense, but the syntax... And and some of the grammar, it's just ridiculous. And it, it, it's just going through, like, scripts for, for, like, Blade Runner and Star Wars and Star Trek. And, all, and it's taking out all the, the tropes and, and the common themes and making its own script out of it. And it's, it's ridiculous. Um, there's an actor, they, they actually filmed one, and it's a short film. It's, like, five minutes long or something. And there's this actor named Thomas Middleditch. And you, you, he's one of those guys you, you recognize when you see him. It, he, right. he acted in this thing that they, they actually produced it. And it's hilarious. It makes absolutely no sense. But <laughs> it's one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. And I just wonder if, if music is going to get to that point where, oh, yeah, hey, just spit out. Here, here, let's just feed all of Dylan's stuff into this artificial intelligence. And let's see what it spits out. And we'll record that. Well, you know, I guess we're we're early in the game as far as the computer goes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would almost like to hear what that ha what 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 that ha what that would sound like. What happens when you do that? That would be that could be hilarious. It could be a comedy album instead. Well, I you know, it, it, it sounds like that the, the uh, they were evoking a lot of comedy for you. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It stuck with me for sure. <laughs> you know. As long as they're not asking for your ID and uh, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> hey, what's your PIN? Uh, your bank account number? That's I'll be okay. I'll give if you, a song. you give me your PIN. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. So I want to know a little bit more about your music um, okay. because I've been listening to a lot of it, and it, it it's so varied. There's so many different things. I mean, some things like I was listening to the Aurora Twenty Three album and it's so cinematic it's it's amazing it, i especially love the song the fly It's kind of, it's frenetic, but it's not abrasive, and it's it's it sticks within that cinematic aspect of the whole album. It, it is cinema a, a, an influence when you write music. Well, I think in the case of that record, it was to a certain extent because uh, 
you know, a lot of the themes, the, the War of the Worlds kind of theme, the, the Fly. I mean, they were all basically like sci-fi films. Right, so right, I yeah. I thought of Aurora being kind of like a sci-fi project, if, if that makes sense. That It does. It does, especially after hearing it, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I just, I've always liked lots of different kinds of music. Uh, you know, the, the, one of the last conversations uh, Glenn Bronca and I had, he was like, you know, you never put out a jazz record. You should put out a jazz record. <laughs> so I, I, w- I actually went through a whole bunch of my stuff and, and I, jazz would never be the first music that I would say, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I'm a jazz freak. And right. in a way, a lot, of, a lot of jazz I find annoying or less than interesting. Okay. Um, but at the same time, there, there's compelling elements to it, like, like all music, you know. So I, I guess I just have this... I just like whirling through these different kinds of concepts and, and seeing where it goes. Um, you know, years ago when I had a band, the glorious strangers and I would send the tapes out to record companies. They're like, you know, we like all these songs, but which band is it? Is it this song or is it this song or is it this song? They want to. They want to hear that, like that extreme focus. And I guess my my thing was always like a bigger, broader blur. Right, right. You well, it sounds like you've got a lot of influences, and then and, and you know you want to explore those. Exactly. You know, and as I say, uh, I mean, interestingly, as as I get older, I, I I start going more towards a classical thing, and I, I'm not sure why that is. Whether it's it's just because I've, I feel like I've been down the, the noise path and now yeah. I'm just looking for, for some different kind of uh, uh, beauty, I guess, or structure. So, I, you know, I've been fooling around with a lot of that uh, symphonic writing and everything recently uh, and the piano stuff. And, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, too, because you are known for working with very noisy bands. But a lot of your stuff, like the uh, Mayan Nocturnes album, uh, Political Sonatas, yeah, yeah, those very delicate pieces. Um, is that like a, a response to working with so much noise? You wanted to actually do something that was quiet or is it just, you know, Hey, this is what I want to do. I, I, I wrote a lot of those piano pieces at night in the studio after the band. Had left. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, in a way it is, I guess the, the soothing balm that uh, gets you to the next level after, after all the anger is, is, is out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're they're beautiful. They're so soft and and, and um, delicate. It's, I'm, I'm I'm so glad you like them. I love them. I'm I, I wish I had found them a lot sooner because th- I think they're fantastic. And I know a lot of people that I'm going to be exposing them to. So excellent. I, cool. I absolutely love them. I think I'm, I know a lot of people that are going to like them. Um, the ensemble. Now, I 
you're saying that jazz is not a big thing for you, but I definitely hear jazzy influences on the in the ensemble. Um, well, I mean, is it on purpose? We put out our second, we put out our second record, and I was getting jazz reviews. I, I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have crossed the line somewhere yeah. into an area I did not intend to head. <laughs> but I, I guess that you know the saxophone uh, brings in a lot of of, of uh, a jazz element for people. And so, um, you know, the, the, the other part of the ensemble, of course, is, is the courting and, and the strange, uh, not, not necessarily a major chord, but different triads and things juxtaposed, which, which is kind of a jazz, uh, trick, I guess. Okay. Okay. So I, I, I would imagine that, 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 that gives it a bit of that element, but I, you know, I never really considered myself a jazz drummer, although, um, I did love uh, Sing 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 growing up. <laughs> <laughs> More for the drums than than the music, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this guy's playing jazz. He's doing a drum solo. That is cool. Yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting because it, it has a jazz flavor. It's almost, but I also get the the guitariness of Branca and and Chatham in it with with a little bit of a jazz and maybe it's just the saxophone maybe like, like you're saying maybe that's just what's throwing me into that direction a little bit more Well, I mean, it, the, the songs themselves are not, you know, hard structured in some cases. They have the, the kind of flowing changes that you'd find more in jazz than rock, for okay. sure. So, you know, I, I mean, I can understand where people were getting it. It wasn't totally alien, but <laughs> yeah. I, I certainly not conceived I'm, I'm going to make a jazz record now. Right. <laughs> when you guys are playing, is it a uh, group effort when it comes to writing the music for that? Or, or are you bringing just bringing in stuff and saying, well, hey, we'll I mean, as I said, we started out with just getting together every week and I would just introduce ideas. Um, so, sometimes it, they were just, uh, the tracks were just experiments that were taped because uh, we, we'd meet in the studio and I could run the tape at any time. So I, I awesome. inevitably would record things and just let it all happen. And that became the, the track. That's awesome. Um, you know, in other cases, I worked out parts and said, here, we're going to play this here. We're going to do this here. We're going to do this here. So I, it, it's, it was very collaborative in, in, in many respects, but kind of both ways, you know, me having more say over some things or, you know, letting people have the freedom to, just, to do whatever. Your name's on the group, so. Well, I always got to say that what was going on the record, I guess. <laughs> of course, I got to mix it, so I could always take away things that. <laughs> I've, I've had to deal with a few members saying, well, whatever happened to that guitar part I was playing there? <laughs> that, that click. I want that click back. <laughs> Has the, yeah, find that click and put yeah. it back. <laughs> Has the band stayed pretty much the same, or have you had uh, people coming in and out of it? Well, um, it was it was fairly stable initially uh, for about the first five years and then it just kind of underwent a sort of a flux over the next 
probably five or so years. Uh, one of the guitarists moved to California, you know, different people, uh, um, we're in the band. It wasn't until about two years ago where I did a show and I realized that Fletcher couldn't come that night to play sax. So I, I had a friend come over and I realized that the, the entire band was completely different from the one that started. Oh, wow. Except for me. <laughs> wow. So that's kind of like outliving it, I guess, or yeah. living through it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, we've had some member changes and actually we're, we're in a bit of flux right at the moment. Uh, okay. One, one of the guitarists that's played with me for a while has as, as, uh, decided to retire. So uh, I'm, I'm going to be looking for a couple of uh, some new blood and uh, see where that goes. Awesome. You've been on, you, you've been a part of over 200 albums, recording, producing, engineering. Is there any, are there any that stick out as being really, and I'm not saying, you know, the band was hard to work with or anything. I don't, but the sound is there are there any that just stick out like that record was just a bitch to get finished well <laughs> uh manic compression probably is really <laughs> <laughs> my favorite as close to that as some of them uh Only because they had a lot of time and they had a, had a huge budget, um, and the, the Fun City I, I couldn't record there for uh, about a year because of a problem with one of the tenants. Oh. So uh, it, it involved going to other studios. It involved uh, sitting around with Walter while he would write lyrics, you know, and I'd be there all day and we'd get a line and a half done. Jeez. Oh, um. So, so that was a little trying, you know, and it, and then it kept we kept kept going into different formats. It was on ADAT for a while. It was oh, wow, that's oh. gonna be a pain in the ass. So yeah, it it I, I can't say that it. it, it I, I like it now when I listen to it a lot better than I did in the process of doing it. I, <laughs> I guess that's a fair assumption. <laughs> but but for the most part, you know, of those two hundred records, I mean, most of the people didn't have big budgets. So it was yeah. really a matter of recording something in a couple of weeks, you know, which would have been the indie band's kind of budget at the time, right, right. you know. And uh like you said, I mean if 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 bands came with, with a bunch of material that was well rehearsed, I mean two weeks was plenty of time to get it down and make it sound good. Wow. You know? That's awesome. And you know, it, it also means you have to be a little more creative, maybe with 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 some of the things we've got to get this done. We only have this much time. And well, I mean, you, yeah, you, you force people to accept things that later on they say, "Well, I'm glad we did that." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I'm glad I didn't erase that thing that, that I kept thinking was a mistake, and you kept saying, "No one's going to hear it." <laughs> I, you know. People and I, I mean this is this is another thing for for recording your own stuff as well. I said that having the studio can be a drawback. Is 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 there, you know, where do you stop? I mean, what, what do you call finished, and where do you leave the mistake that you know to you seems like a mistake now, but to other people may not. Right. You know? And um, 
I think one of the, the problems with so much pop music today is that there's really so little mystery to it. It's, it's, it's almost like it's more expected yeah. things than any kind of surprises. I mean, no one's cutting off their song at the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's getting worse with Spotify and all the streaming stuff. Now they're actually, a, and you, you may know this because you're in the business a lot more than I am, but they're putting algorithms and metrics out to find how many, you know, how long it takes for, um, what it takes for people to be invested in the song. Like some people are, you know, they're starting with a chorus. You've got to have it within the first, you know, 30 seconds of this song or people are, you know, clicking to the next song. And it's, it's getting to be more math than music. Well, and you know, I mean, that's unfortunate. I, you know, I think music has to have some sort of uh, wake up at some point, And I'm not sure where that is. You know, yeah. it's, I, I'm not sure where that's going to come from. You know, I, I look at my daughter and she's basically was raised on the computer, you know, and, and to, to her, it's, it's, you know, Spotify, whatever. She, she scrolls through music like, oh, my kids, just, too. So much cake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my you know, kids the I mean, same back, in the, back in the day, we, you'd buy a record and, and you'd, you'd listen to it for two weeks. You know, yes. And, and it was a whole different experience. Yeah, you know, because you spent money on it. You were inve- whether you liked it or not, you were going to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and in the end, you'd say, "Well, I, I'm glad I bought it for this song and this song, but these didn't work out." So well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there was some sort of investment, you know. And and even going back to the no wave, when people say, "Well, why, why do you think it still stands out in people's minds?" I'm like, "Well, it was all kind of pre-computer, you know, mm-hmm. and we were just dealing with what we had to to try and find something new." Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it some of the some of my favorite music is that era and it's just it's really unique stuff for such a short era of of, of music. It was really influential on, on a lot of bands. So it's it's still having an effect. Yeah. I'm glad you were part of it. Are you working on any any new solo material or any any uh anything coming out that you can uh talk to us about any projects or any any bands that you're working with well um i'm i'm working on uh releasing symphony number no. nine oh of, of mine that, that that that'll probably be my next release uh and and then as I said, I'm, I'm I'm looking to to reconstruct the ensemble a bit and 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 start that up again as well um, as far as other bands, you know, I've, I've just been doing some mixing here and there. I, I haven't really been out uh, pursuing much production work because, uh, I, I guess I've been enjoying writing my own music. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. That's the dream, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, and, and I have to say, you know, it's like when I stood there in the mid nineties saying, well, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know, that, that, but that was the obvious answer. You have to play music and you have to, you know, do your music. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad I was able to pull that off. Well, I'm really enjoying it. I wish I discovered it sooner, but I am enjoying it now. So where can people follow you? Uh, can they follow, do you have a, a, an account online or is there a, some place they can follow? Well, you can go to com. There you go. <laughs> Wordandtears.com still works. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
you know, Spotify and all, all those services, you can find the music, uh, YouTube. I did a bunch of videos and put it up for the some of the ensemble stuff and some of the looper stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's all it's all basically out there. And it's all on Bandcamp, too, which is a great place to, to find it. Yeah, Bandcamp is, is, is the best. And I, I think I have a special deal on the new album on Bandcamp. Oh, sweet. All right, we'll have to check that out. Okay. Thank you so much for spending time with me tonight. I, I learned a lot, and uh, it was a blast talking to you. Thank you so much. All right. Excellent. Hi, this is Wharton Tears, uh, producer, engineer, and musician. And uh, I've got the ensemble and uh, lots of great classical music in the works. Um, I'm on performance anxiety, and uh, I'm not sure that was very focused. (laughs) (laughs) That was perfect. That was awesome. I love that. Okay. We could do another one if you want, but I usually take... If if, if you love it, I'm I'm happy with it. I love it. It's like one of those mistakes. It is. You know, and... I used to tell bands, I said, I'll give you $5 if anyone ever comes up to you and says, I like this song except for this guitar right here. (laughs) (laughs) And I made that bet many times and no one ever, no one ever collected on it. See, that's what I love that stuff where it's, it's like found sounds and and little, little mistakes. And I love that stuff. Obscure. Yes. Like, I'm not a big, huge Matthew Sweet fan, but that's one of the things that I always liked about him was that, I, and I had read this early on in his career, he, you know, I, I'm, t- I'm trying to remember which guitarist it was. It was, it was Richard Lloyd, maybe, who was uh, uh, playing something, and, like, this guitar strap broke or something, and the, and the guitar fell and hit the floor and made some weird noise. And he's like, no, that's great. Let's keep it. <laughs> I'm like, that's the kind of stuff I love. Yeah, it's the greatest. <laughs> it is. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 